Get on with Increment 172 of Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. This time, we're going to present quite a challenge on the beginning of a doctrine of human being as microcosm, a man or a woman as a miniature universe, we could say. And the reason this is a challenge is because I'm going to use a particularly challenging method today. And it's one of those teachings that you'll be getting something out of it without knowing it until much, much later, maybe. So, Father, we thank you for your timeless grace, and your grace is also timely. So we ask now for timely grace for our perception of your word, because without your grace, it's impossible for us to lay hold of the transcendent realities of your scripture and it's impossible for us to seize upon the hope that we have set before us. It's an anchor for our souls at this time in the waning days of this evil age. So we thank you, and I thank you for reports of people who are being challenged and being blessed and being strengthened and even transformed and delivered by the message of the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With that thanksgiving and with those requests, we begin our study. In Jesus' name, amen. The doctrine of human being as microcosm. Now, this is going to come from a different kind of approach that we've ever taken before. <clears throat> so I like to think of it as waiting a little deeper into the river of the water of life. And once you wade out far enough, the river takes you. So good teaching proceeds from obscurity to clarity. We'll make that a principle if you want. Good teaching proceeds from obscurity to clarity. To see something clearly, <clears throat> we sometimes have to see it obscurely first. To see a clear outline, we must see first a blurred outline, a silhouette, as deer hunters like to call it when they put a deer in their sights when it's almost too late to shoot. But this is God's method for us, to see first obscurely and then clearly. You say, how is that a divine method? Well, in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, we see now obscurely as in a bronze mirror, but then face to face. So God even proceeds in his revelation to us of his son and of the eschatological future. He proceeds from obscurity to clarity. Again, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see now in a glass obscurely, darkly, as the old King James says, but it means to see obscurely as in a bronze mirror but we anticipate seeing face-to-face -face that for which we hope, or we should say he for whom we hope, or he who is our hope. I suspect that some doctrines never come into clear view. In fact, they're never developed and never even are created because we who teach don't dare to present them first in a blurred outline. 
We don't want people to say of us, he's way over my head, or that's too out there for me. But as Thomas Aquinas taught, and as always elucidated clearly by Lonergan in modern times, before a clear perception, there is a phantasm. Now, that's the word P-H-A-N-T-A-S-M. Phantasm. Before a clear perception, there is a phantasm. Now, I'm using the word phantasm in its sense as, quote, an illusory mental image, as the American Heritage College Dictionary defines it. Often, before a transcendent reality becomes a clearly perceived, seen, or known by us reality, it's a phantasm, that which I would call an inarticulable thought thought you can't put into words or into a word verbum as the Latin says or into a doctrine first it's a phantasm in fact the USSJC as I like to call it the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ appeared first to me as a phantasm an illusory mental image then it proceeded from that obscure outline to a more clear outline so that we see Jesus in his universally saving significance in a much clearer way, but we anticipate still seeing him face to face in a beatific vision, which will be transfigurative. So once again, phantasm, an illusory mental image, a clearly, before clearly perceived, an inarticulable thought, an image in our chamber of imagery that we can't give words to because we haven't found the words yet. We say often today when we can't express our thanks enough or our gratitude or our amazement, there are no words. Those words come with a clarifying of the phantasm into a verbum, a word, a principle, even a doctrine a logos. This is the case with the doctrine of the human being as a microcosm or an individual human being as a mini-universe. This first appeared to me as a phantasm. Now lately I've been a little bit personal because I've been tracing some of the personal history that I went through myself in coming to certain conclusions as with the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and another aspect of that, the universal or cosmic impact of the cross of Christ, that impact being redemptive, rectifying, reconciling, restorative, as is the judgment of God. The judgment of God itself is reconciling, rectifying, and restorative, not attributive. We prove that through the doctrine of our study of Revelation. Now, this is the case with the doctrine of the human being as a microcosm or a mini-universe. And this doctrine, and it's not yet a doctrine, but it first appeared to me as a phantasm. First, when we were studying the prologue to the Gospel of John, 
back in probably 2010, that's 11 years ago when we began it, especially with the declaration, the word became flesh. Word, verbum in Latin, logos in Greek. The word became flesh. Now, again, I want to warn you, as we're going along teaching this today, you'll be receiving the doctrine in a kind of a blurred outline. It'll be kind of a blurred scaffolding for a doctrine in the future. So you're not going to have a lot of aha moments necessarily unless the Holy Spirit of course desires to do that but this is a kind of message you're going to get something out of down the road you're going to get something out of it as it were without knowing it and so we're proceeding along that line where discovery will be in the future and so we're again this is the building of a doctrine so Again, the doctrine of human being or a human being as a mini-universe or as a microcosm first appeared to me as a phantasm with the declaration the word became flesh in John 1.14. When this was coupled with a contemplation of Ephesians, especially Ephesians 1.10, 1.22, and 4.10, where the mystery of God's will involves the universal recapitulation of all things in Christ, an individual human being who happens also to be divine. The phantasm arose upon contemplating on those two passages that when the eternal word became flesh, sarks, in the person of Jesus, that in him all of created reality was somehow already embodied. That was the phantasm. Just now being able to put a word or two to it. This phantasm started to become a word or verbum when I blended the idea of the gradation of the levels of created reality. Now, by that, I mean, and I'm not a physicist, and I'm not a student of quantum mechanics, just barely beginning to be a student of vertical causality, but the, when I talk about the gradation of the levels of created reality, there is the quark, as it's called, Q-U-A-R-K, or the subatomic particle. Then there is the atom, then there is the molecular, then there's the multi-molecular organism, and it goes up to the animal being, and then the rational being that's human being, etc. And there are many stages in between. So when I blended the idea of the gradation of the levels of created reality and their integration in the rational being called man, then the phantasm began to be a little more attention-grabbing, let's say it that way. Consequently, when thinking of Jesus as becoming flesh, the thought dawned that in him there was a sub, the subatomic particle, multiple trillions of them. There was the atomic particle, multiple trillions of them. There was the molecule. There was the multicellular organism. There was the animal, not the... The animal nature is what Jesus' nature was, but the animal nature is in every human being, but sublated, not negated, sublated, and then integrated into a higher being called the rational human being. 
And it's for this reason that it's not way out to call Jesus a lamb, the lamb of God, to call Jesus the lion, or even to consider him as like the serpent that Moses hung on a pole. These all come into play, and this is still in a very formative stage here. So that the eternal word was said not to just have become a human being, but to have become flesh, seemed to say to me that the incarnation involved not only the integration of human being, human being adjective there in Jesus Christ, but in his flesh or becoming flesh was the integration of all created being in him in whom also all the fullness of the Godhead resides bodily. When he was incarnate, he was fully divine, and his kenosis, so-called, was not the emptying out of his divinity, for he was, as, first, as Colossians 2.9 says, even still today, and from his incarnation, he is the fullness of all that could be called divinity or deity bodily. So this, the phantasm started to become a verbum or a word and even the scaffolding for a doctrine when I was able to say, quote, in Jesus, the human being, also known as the man Christ Jesus, all of the levels of material creation are sublated. That means they're not negated in him but integrated into a higher integration of human beings. So again, in Jesus, the animal being, for example, is sublated, not negated, but integrated into the higher integration of human being. In Jesus, the non-rational being of creation is sublated. Again, sublation there means not negated, but integrated into a higher integration of animal being and then human being. That's why it's said that we have an animal nature, as it were, that, we are, that is sublated in our rational human nature. It is not negated in us. If we descend to that animal nature, we live by instinct, we live like a wild animal, we live as users, as predators, as all the other things that animals can be, and instead of in a higher rational living human being or way of being. In Jesus, the multicellular organism is not negated but sublated in a higher integration of non-rational living being, etc. It goes all the way down to the atom and then the subatomic particle, the quark as it's called in physics. Now, if I've been doing this right, you are not getting a clear idea, but you're being presented with a phantasm that's evolving into a clear thought and has the making of the perception of a transcendent reality that which the Bible calls a mystery. The doctrine of human being as a microcosm begins just this way. First, it's a phantasm. Now, I realize that I'm taking a risk here, and I did in all my study and preparation for this, but it's a calculated risk when I teach this way, and I say calculated risk because I'm trusting in the Holy Spirit of truth, the Spirit of truth, that he will clarify 
what is obscure as we dare to wade deeper into the river of the water of life. What we'll do then is to start to bring this doctrine to the clear light of day by beginning with a review of what we ended with in our last increment. After developing a certain doctrine in Hebrews, I waded into a, a kind of an introduction of the doctrine of a human being as microcosm, and I want to repeat or reiterate and maybe slightly expand on that to begin to flesh out our doctrine of human being or a human being as microcosm. And this is what we want to review. In their meeting on the mountain, God instructed Moses how to construct the earthly tabernacle in the desert. We're going to see this earthly tabernacle in contrast to the heavenly tabernacle, which is not made with hands, which is in the heavens in Hebrew. So this is going to come out sometime down the road. God showed Moses the blueprint or the pattern, as it were, for the construction of the earthly wilderness tabernacle, as it's called. Then he warned Moses to build the tent exactly according to the specs of this pattern, the specifications of the blueprint that God showed him on the mountain. The references for that are Exodus 25.40 and Hebrews 8.5b. In Exodus 40, verse 33... A, the first part of the verse, the last stage of construction was recounted or narrated. It says there that Moses set up the courtyard surrounding the tent and the altar. Then in 4033b of Exodus, it says, and Moses finished all the works. He finished the work on the tabernacle. When the desert tabernacle was completed, the scripture declares the following. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The cloud is what is known as the Shekinah, the visible glory of God in a cloud form. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, as it's called, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Now, you should remember some of this because I'm reviewing from our last increment in order to begin this doctrine. That was in Exodus 40, 34. Consequently, it says, and significantly, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because, of the, because the cloud rested on it. And here's the kicker. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, what if right now you started to get a little discovery of the human body as a tabernacle filled with the glory of God? And what if that was a microcosm of the universe being filled with the glory of God. Well, maybe you'd be on the right track. 4035 of Exodus. The glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle after its completion may be compared to another passage of scripture on the Solomonic temple or the temple of Solomon and the glory of Yahweh filling the temple of Solomon after its dedication. After Moses finished the work, the cloud filled the temple or the cloud overshadowed the temple and the cloud filled the temple with the glory of the Lord and Moses couldn't enter. And when, when we think about that, we can't enter into the work of our salvation either. It's a work of God. It's the glory of God that's, that is being manifested in our salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, not of you, not of me, not of any group of people, not of any 
magisterial leader of the church, but of God. Now, the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle after its completion by Moses may be compared to the glory of Yahweh filling the temple of Solomon after its dedication by Solomon. Both Moses and Solomon, of course, are types of Christ, and Christ is the greater Moses, Christ is the greater Solomon, of course. But in 1 Kings, which is the Septuagint third reigns, 810, it says that when the priests went out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. Now it's called a house, the house of the Lord. In 811 of 1 Kings, or third reigns, it says, and the priests could not enter or they could not stand to minister, it says, from before the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now, what happens when the glory of the Lord fills the house? The Levitical priesthood can't continue anymore. What happens when the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle? Moses cannot enter. So bear this in mind along with Paul's double declaration. This is still a reiteration of our last increment, which bears repetition because it's the scaffolding for a doctrine so that the phantasm can realize itself in a clear doctrine. Bear this in mind along with Paul's double declaration in 1 Corinthians 3.16. You, plural, are God's temple, he said to the saints at Corinth, and God's spirit dwells in you. And in 1 Corinthians 6.19, speaking of the individual Christian's human body, he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. The Holy Spirit, whom we have from God, of course, in Romans 5.5, pours the love of God in our, throughout our hearts fills our whole hearts with the love of God so that hate can't enter, fear can't enter. In fact, fear takes an exit, a, a violent exit out from us, terror, dread, and all kinds of other fears. And that really transforms a person altogether. We have not received from the Lord a spirit of fear or timidity or dread, but of power and love and a sound mind and sound judgment, the capacity for sound judgment as we have seen. And so, in the, as we also saw, and this bears repetition, when a person or persons is said in, the, in Luke's writings, both Luke and Acts, to be filled with the Spirit, the same word is used. Now, for example, Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Paul and others filled with the Holy Spirit, Gentiles and Jews throughout Luke. Luke 115, 41, 67. Luke 115, 141, 167. Acts 2, 4, 4, 8, 4, 31, 9, 17, and 13, 9. That word pimplemi is used. Again, we've seen that. P-I-M-P-L, long E-M-I, pimplemi. And therefore, to be filled with the Spirit reminds us of the temple or the house or the human body being filled with the Holy Spirit so that certain things can't stand to minister, certain 
persons can't enter, certain attitudes and dispositions are expelled, etc. Now, this goes to joy and this goes to hope. The messages are now oscillating between joy and hope, hope and joy. So it could be said that the saints as a temple in whom the Holy Spirit resides with the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy in Galatians 5.22, that those believers were filled with the glory of the Lord and therefore filled with a glory-filled joy. Now, if we take this to Hebrews, when the saints are filled with the Spirit, there is no need for the Levitical priests. There's no way for them to stand to minister for them any longer. That Levitical priesthood no longer is relevant. It's no longer extant for them because the glory of the Lord has filled their house. The word house is used twice in 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11. And Paul uses the Greek word for house. Again, this is important for developing our doctrine. Paul uses the word, the Greek word for house to describe two things, really one thing, but in two different forms, oikia. First, to describe our earthly body, which he calls a tent. And Peter does the same thing in Second Peter 1.14 and following. He calls it a tent, the body as a tent and the body as a house. Paul uses the Greek word for house, oikia, to describe both our earthly body or tent, same thing, S-K-E-N-O-S, skenos, which is related to what Jesus did when he became flesh. He tented among us. He had a tent, too, and a human body. So Paul uses the Greek word for house to describe both our earthly body or tent and our heavenly body, an everlasting house in the heavens, oikia, in the heavens, uranoi, with an obvious reference to the two tents, the tent, which is our body, and the house, which is our heavenly tabernacle, with an obvious reference to the two tents that are described in Hebrews 8 the man-made earthly tent and the heavenly tent that is not made with human hands and is not of this creation. I'm leaving it to the spirit to make connections for you and to fire the synapses of your brain. Now let's begin, after all, he created your brain. So now let's begin to build these passages into a doctrine or at least let's call it the scaffolding for a doctrine. All the study of Hebrews that I'm doing in these past 172, this is 176, 72nd increment, all the studies I'm doing in Hebrews are not a definitive commentary on Hebrews. What I hope them to be is a scaffolding for a future more powerful study and more substantial study of Hebrews done by others down the road. This might give them a little bit of a scaffolding. But this, let's begin to build these passages into a doctrine, or at least the scaffolding for a doctrine, the doctrine of a human being as a microcosm, a micro-universe. The universe itself is a house. And again, this is still kind of a reiteration, but I want to develop it a little more. For in Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord himself said, The heaven is my throne, 
and the earth is my footstool, where is the house, oikos, oikos, related, different inflection, same word, O-I-K-O-S, where is the house that you will build for me? That's like God saying, I've wrought this so great salvation, where's this salvation you're going to do now? The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Again, Isaiah 66, 1. Where is the house that you will build for me? Now, when the house of an individual human being is filled with the glory of the Lord, this is a micro universe of the heavens and the earth. It's analogous to the glory of the Lord filling the universe. And that's actually going to happen one day in what 2 Peter 3.18 calls the day of eternity, when God is all in all, in 1 Corinthians 15.28. Now, again, in Jürgen Moltmann's book, I have not read this book, only skimmed some of it and began it, but I intend to read it. In Moltmann's book called God in Creation, he wrote, quote, According to its Greek derivation, the word ecology means the doctrine of the house. That ECO in the English language comes from oikos, and ecology, you add logos, you have the word of the house, which is ecology. Now, ecology speaks of the universe as a house, true ecology, and there is a true and biblical ecology. So, in According to the Greek derivation, this is again Moltmann, the word ecology means the doctrine of the house, oikos. Slightly later, Moltmann added this. He said, quote, the divine secret of creation is the Shekinah. Now, let me insert here that the Shekinah is the cloud that overshadowed both the desert tent and the Solomon's temple, and then that cloud filled the temple with the glory of the Lord. So slightly later, Moltmann writes this, the divine secret of creation is the Shekinah, God's indwelling. And the purpose of the Shekinah is to make the whole creation the house of God. You hear that? Purpose of the Shekinah is to make the whole creation the house of God. Get the idea here, and I'm dropping another hint, dropping another lens. The human body is a house. When it's filled with the glory of the Lord, it's a microcosm of the universe, which is also a house which will one day be filled with the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk 2.14 comes to mind. And many other passages in the Psalms, especially Psalms in the 95s, 96, and 97 range. The individual human being called Adam, for example, was created as a microcosm of the universe. In his complete being was sublated all the levels of created being from the subatomic particle or quark to the atom, the molecule, then the macromolecular cell, the multicellular organism, then the animal, the rational human being then, after the animal. Adam was a microcosm. He embodied all the elements of material creation. The doctrine of the microcosm of the human being explains why all the universe, listen carefully to this, the doctrine of the microcosm of the 
human being explains why all the universe was affected by sin. Now we're in the realm of homardiology in our theological exegesis of Hebrews. The doctrine of the microcosm of the human being explains why all the universe was affected by sin when it entered into the world through the one man, the first man, Adam, the first microcosm of the universe. For sin passed into all the cosmos, says Romans 5.12, meaning all the universe, and death as the result of sin. We would then say, if we were into astrophysics, that entropy entered into the universe, which is the universe's slow crawl toward death and total coldness. Not only death for all of humanity, therefore, but for all the universe. There's another hint that we find in John 129. Look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos. The sin came into the world through the one man, the microcosm of the universe, into the universe, had to be taken out of the universe for the universe to be transformed. The Lamb of God took away the sin of the cosmos. So we're dropping lenses here. We're still looking in a bronze mirror in an obscure way, but it's beginning to evolve into a doctrine. You believe in evolution. I do. I believe a phantasm can evolve into a clear doctrine. When the eternal word that is God became blood and flesh, that's Hebrews 2.14, in the man Christ Jesus, this man Christ Jesus also sublated within himself as the second Adam and the second human microcosm, this man, Christ Jesus, also sublated within himself all of created being in all its levels. What am I doing today? Developing the doctrine from phantasm to a clear doctrine, but I'm doing it gradually. And this doctrine will have to be elucidated, explicated, explained, and expounded upon throughout our study of Hebrews and maybe beyond that and hopefully by others who might take the mantle of this doctrine and fill it out a lot better than I could. So once again, when the eternal word that is God became blood and flesh in the man Jesus, this man, Christ Jesus, also sublated within himself all of created being in all of its levels. As a rational and sinless being, he also is the head of all principalities and powers. Consequently, in Jesus is all created being, while he also remains divine in every way. In him is all uncreated reality bodily. That's divinity bodily, or the Godhead bodily, Theotes, Colossians 2.9. In him is all created reality also. This is what it means that all things are to be comprised of Jesus comprised of Christ. Now this is the juncture of anthropology with Christology. Not only is a human being a micro universe or a microcosm, but the man, the human being named Jesus is a microcosm. And his resurrected human being is a microcosm of a what? Transformed new creation that will be filled as he is with the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah. 
And so this is a unique approach and probably even the best possible approach that we can make to Jesus Christ universally saving and restorative significance. In him is all uncreated reality bodily. In him is all created reality. So when the eternal word became humanity, he lived a life on earth that was free from sin. He was tested as all human beings are, but never resorted to sin, we've learned in Hebrews 4.15. In his death, he took away the sin of the world, as Hebrews 9.26 says. He put away sin by the offering of himself, took away the sin of the world in John 1.29. Not just the sin of an elect cadre of human beings, no. He took away the sin of the world that had entered into the cosmos through the first man, and by sin, death entered to all of humanity and all the cosmos, because all humanity have sinned, Romans 5.12 again. Let's stop and get into a little clearing in the woods here and ask a question. What are we doing? What are we doing here? We're constructing a doctrine, or at least the scaffolding for a doctrine of human being as microcosm. Consider Psalm 8, 4 through 6, Septuagint 8, 5 through 7 should sound familiar because it's reproduced exactly in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8a. What is man or humankind that you remember him or a son of man that you are concerned for him? You set him over the works of your hands You subjected all things under his feet. This means more than just man dominating nature or being the crown of creation. This means that a man is a microcosm. In him is sublated all things. In Christ is sublated all the levels of creation. And so the son of man and man are both mentioned here. This passage, echoed in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8a, as I said, has an inference that can be drawn from the passage that God intended from the beginning to make man a microcosm of the universe, for in man is sublated and integrated all the elements and levels of divine creation. The individual human being is a microcosm of the universe, How does this relate to joy and how does it relate to hope, our two oscillating themes? Well, an individual human being who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit is a microcosm of the universe that's destined to be indwelt by the triune God so that God will be all in all. Now, with regard to human beings, specifically believers in Christ, the Bible says that we of necessity right now, of necessity because it's necessary, We are being tested with a variety of testings in this particular agona, this particular evil age. We're being tested for one reason, and it is so that, here, let's pick up with 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9 today, see how this clicks. So that, says verse 7, the authenticity of your faith, more valuable than precious but perishable gold, though refined by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
at the apocalypse or the universal appearing of Jesus Christ. You love him, it says in the scripture here in eight. You love him, though you have not seen him. And though, and though not seeing him just now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. What's that from? Where's that from? Full of glory. The temple filled with glory. The tent filled with glory. The filling of the Holy Spirit. And then it says in verse 9, receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The receiving there is in the present tense, which means you're already receiving the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls, which means that God is even now giving you the joy of his salvation, as Psalm 51 calls it. My prayer for all of you lately has been that God will restore to you, if you've lost it, not your salvation, but the joy of your salvation, as Psalm 51 says. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. This outcome that is spoken of in 1 Peter 1, 9, is being received even now according to the present participial form of the verb komizo, used by Peter, K-O-M-I-Z-O. Komizo. And uh, that looks like this in the Greek. It's K-O-M-I-Z-O. Komizo. And it's found also in 1 Peter 5, 4, where it says that faithful pastors, shepherd teachers in this age, will receive from the chief shepherd, which is really arch-shepherd, arch plus poimenos, will receive from the arch-shepherd a what? A crown of glory. A crown of glory. It's also used, Komizo is found in 2 Peter 2.13 in the Byzantine text. But Komizo is also found, speaking of parallels between 1 Peter and Hebrews, Hebrews 10.36, Hebrews 11.19, Hebrews 11.39. Faith's outcome, even now, is the salvation of our souls, which we experience even now. Just even as we let the engrafted word be received, different word for received there in James 1.21, has the power to save our souls, to save our souls from despair, to save our souls from the debilitating doubts and fears and anxieties and sometimes dejection and a sense of self-loathing and a sense of desperation and a sense of depression. Not, there's no stigma against all these things that can be genuine psychological ailments, but the word of God should not be thrown out as the salvation from those things. And it is. And it has been in my case. It has been in many other people's cases. And it will be in many more cases, including perhaps yours that I'm speaking to today. Faith's outcome even now is the experience of the salvation, the deliverance, and the preservation of our souls, even in times like these. For faith, the substance of things hoped for, is the presence in us of those hoped-for things already, 
already in us now. The salvation of our souls is the reintegration of that which was disintegrated through sin. Sin is a progressive disintegration. Grace is a progressive reintegration of that which was disintegrated. The salvation of our souls is the reintegration of that which was disintegrated through sin. For sin is a progressive disintegration, a progressive disuniting of what was created. We are going through social disintegration now, social disunification. While political leaders are claiming to be unifiers, they're actually adding to the disintegration of freedom and the disintegration of unity in society because of sin, because of rejecting divine policy, because of rejecting grace, because of rejecting some of the principles that are ensconced in the Constitution of the United States, but more so in the Word of God. So the outcome of faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, is the salvation of our souls from hopeless despair on the one hand and from nihilistic resignation on the other hand. Nihilistic resignation is simply the hopeless acceptance that there is no God and that after death there is nothing, that life has no meaning or purpose, etc., that life need not be valued, that the heartbeat of an infant need not be listened to and considered to be life. But the salvation of our souls is also the reintegration of our entire humanity so that we become genuinely human via redemption and regeneration and by a progressive grace participation with Jesus. This graced participation is an imitation of Jesus, our great archpriest who reintegrates all of creation in himself, including the celestial and angelic spheres of creation including the angelic spheres of creation. Why is that? Because the man Christ Jesus is the second inclusive representative man and the second microcosm of the universe. He is the man Christ Jesus, Adam being the first. But the first man, as the first single inclusive representative, was of the earth, and he was merely earthly and sublated in himself only that which is of the earthly creation. But the second man was from heaven. And so he sublates all of created reality and reintegrates or integrates all of created reality on earth and in the heavens in himself. He is not only the head of the church, the body of humanity in, of whom it is said, Christ is all and in you all, Colossians 3.11. He is also the head of all things in Ephesians 1.22, all the universe. And he is the head of all principalities and powers, says Colossians 2.10. Consequently, God's great intention is that everything and every being in the heavens and on earth be integrated in him, comprised of him, reconciled in him, redeemed 
rectified, restored, glorified, not brought back to some form it had before, but transformed to have a form greater than it ever had before, a form that can never be eclipsed, a form that is eternized. So every being and everything in the heavens and on earth includes humanity other than the church also, and it includes ultimately angels other than the elect and unfallen ones. For Jesus has universally saving significance, and his death has a universally redemptive, reconciling, rectifying, and reintegrating effect. That's a lot, so that's enough. Amen.